It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, November 9th, 2016, and you're listening to God in Comics, the only show out there with its very own Levitation Chasuble. On today's show, we talk about Doctor Strange, the newest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the comic book from whence it came. We'll discuss the many magical twists and turns that this film takes, as well as the not-so-subtle spirituality that seems to be the story's animating principle. All this, plus our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am the rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. And also on the line today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm in Fre- at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And uh, here we are, Wednesday, November 9th. What an amazing election it was yesterday. Um, I-, I know you guys probably stayed up uh, just like I did. I couldn't believe the results in the end. Loki was elected president. Who knew that that would be what would happen? Uh, but there we are. Um, there was obviously some witchcraft involved. That is correct. No, actually, we're we're uh, recording this on Monday, friends, uh, so we don't know who will be elected president yet. But I have confidence that Loki has a pretty good shot. I think I think it could happen. So. Uh, let's go right into our recommendation. Father Kyle, what are we recommending this week? This week I'm recommending the new series Spider-Man Deadpool that Marvel released sometime back last fall. Uh, it's written by Joe Kelly and illustrated by Ed McGinnis, who's one of my favorite artists. It's a fun, zany, humorous comic. The basic storyline is that a shadow figure has hired Daredevil to murder Peter Parker, the head of Parker Industries. And um, in the course of his plot to do away with Peter Parker, he encounters Spider-Man and the two... Well, let's say this. Spider-Man hates Deadpool. And Spider-Man learns to um, get along with Deadpool through the course of this time. And it's all about the intersecting of the lives of Spider-Man and Deadpool and Peter Parker. Um, It's beautifully drawn. It's just got great wit. Spider-Man ends up being, in a lot of ways, the straight guy in the story, which is an unusual position for him in some ways. And, um, of course, Deadpool is full-on Deadpool, much like many of you saw him in the movie. I certainly think it's a great book, and I highly recommend you go out and check it out if you're looking for a fun comic book in the Marvel tradition. I I haven't uh, read many... uh stories featuring Deadpool. I just remember thinking he looked really cool. Like back, uh, you know, in the nineties when he was in the X-Force, he kind of, you know, he, I mean, he, he looked kind of like a, uh, like an assassin Spider-Man. <laughs> um, yeah. It's funny because I, I'm in the same boat. I have not read a lot of Deadpool. I actually can say I haven't read any Deadpool. Um, before this reading this comic um but there is a a joke that goes through the series about um how deadpool is looking up to spider-man and hence that's part of his look you know he always sort of had that at least in the mask a kind of spider-man-ish appearance and there's a joke in there about that well we're gonna move into our our main discussion our main discussion this week is on dr strange and we have a lot to talk about here um you know when we first put this on the schedule we saw that it was coming up um i think that i certainly thought and i think maybe you guys did too that this was going to be a great opening for basically talking about magic and the occult in comics and we may still get to some of that uh but who knew that this film would have so much deep spiritual resonance of various kinds, I would say, I'm just going to throw this out there, I would say that this is the most Christian comic book film that I have seen that doesn't reference God or Jesus or anything like that at all. Like, there's no reference to any of that stuff, and yet so many Christian themes run through this thing, and other kinds of sort of spiritual themes, which we can kind of get into. Where does the film kind of 
stick to a sort of Christian worldview and where does it kind of veer off into into other kinds of things. But what what did you guys think? Just first off the bat, what did you guys think of the film? Uh, my my initial impression of the film, having seen it last night, I I thought it was a fun film. I thought it was a um, visually arresting film, and I, I definitely thought the story was a pretty strong story. I haven't had a lot of experience with Doctor Strange in the comic book world, and I thought this provided a pretty good basic setup of who he is and what his motivations are as a character. So I I loved it. I thought it was a great film. I appreciated the fact that it was under two hours, too. Yes. Can we please get more films like that? <laughs> yes. I would second uh, Father Kyle's uh, opinion. I, I mean... I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't go see it in 3D. I think that was a big mistake because, boy, I, I, the visuals in this film are just out of this world. They really capture the kind of psychedelic uh, landscapes that uh, that are so much a part of the Doctor Strange comic book. It's kind of Steve Ditko's, like, weird and, and, and wild, like, world where every, kind of almost M.C. Escher Esque, uh, too, and um, you know, I, I, I actually, I, I think I want to go and see the movie again just to catch it in three D. That and I really enjoyed the movie. Um, I thought Benedict uh, Cumberbatch was, um, I thought he gave a a, a stellar performance as, as Doctor uh, Strange. It's funny, he's he's a little typecast as like the like genius with the photographic memory. Uh, it seems like every role he's in, he plays like that kind of character. Right. And sort of arrogant but lovable at the same time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, but he does it well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Sherlock is sort of that character. And, and what's the movie where he plays the code breaker or whatever? Um, but, I, I, I mean, I thought Doctor Strange's character was was different enough from Sherlock. He's 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 more relatable in certain respects even though he is a, a super genius I, I i love the kind of um all the references to pop music that that he makes you know he has yeah. sort of his uh his you know uh photographic memory really you know is utilized in, in in memorizing like facts about records and things like that i thought that was kind of fun as far as the magic element i was a little disappointed that it, it was it wasn't more magical. It almost seemed like the magicians were kind of just like super advanced like scientists or like they were like multiverse ninjas or something like that. The Doctor Strange comic book kind of had more of the arcane bells and smells and and, and uh you know that that kind of magic to it well um, let, let's dig into that a little bit and before we do I, I i should probably say for the listeners out there there's really no way to talk about this film in depth without spoiling some things and so from this point forward just be forewarned uh there will be some spoilers in some of what we say um so if you haven't seen the film yet uh, you may want to pause uh, the podcast, run out to the theater, watch the movie, and then, you know, turn it back on in the car on your on your way home. But uh, Father Matt is bringing up a great point about sort of how this film worked in terms of the magic almost having a scientific kind of quality to it. There is a theme that runs through this whole film about knowledge and about how knowledge works and how much knowledge we have of our world and how a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing when we don't pay attention to the fact that the world is far bigger than uh, the little bit that we have. Um, you know, the ancient one, which by the way, when I was reading the comic book, always pictured Tilda Swinton as the ancient one, uh, because uh, who wouldn't imagine her as a very old, bald Asian man with a beard? Um <laughs> But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but she has a, she has a line um, you know early on in the film where she says to him because he's kind of he is kind of confronting her with this very scientific materialist view of the world and 
her response is, you've been looking at the world through a keyhole. And she basically has to shock him out of that by showing him that, in fact, the scientific materialism through which he views the world. So this is the idea that I think is a a pretty popular one in our culture now, that the only thing that really exists is matter. All that exists is the physical. There is no such thing as the spiritual. There is nothing beyond what we can connect with with our senses. And if there's something that we can't connect with with our senses now, it's just because we haven't quite gotten the scientific know-how to get there yet. Uh, But basically, everything can ultimately be reduced down to the material. This this film kind of takes that on and says, no, that's not true. Uh, in fact, there are much larger realities that are right around the corner. Things that are happening even in our midst, you know, the astral projection battle that takes place when he's on the table in the hospital with Rachel McAdams' character. Whatever, I forget what her name is, um, but, um, you know, operating on him. And, it, you know, it, it only has a minimal effect on our world. Like, you know, the dude gets three bags of chips out of the machine instead of two because it kind of vaguely touches the machine, what they're doing. And yet there's this, like, whole, like, massive reality of what's going on. It made me think, actually, of... Um, we just had a baptism this past weekend. And we have people, when they prepare to be baptized, and also parents, when they're preparing for a child to be baptized... One of the things that they are asked is if they renounce Satan and all of the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. And I'll ask people, you know, what do you think that means? They go looking for some kind of abstract answer when the real answer is just the straightforward, we mean Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness. We mean that there is spiritual reality that's happening all around us that we don't have control over, that we can't access in the way that we access other sorts of things. And there's a kind of letting go of that that's scary, where I'll have a lot of people who are willing to say they believe in God, but they don't like dealing with the idea of Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness, or or even angels, for that matter, because they, just the idea that there's all this spiritual stuff going on is is hard for our materialist minds to take in. I wish almost that they would have let it be a little more mysterious you know instead they kind of like offer this pseudo scientific explanation about like you know the multiverse and like energy and and, you know um you know it's almost like in star wars when they tried to explain the force you know right Um, and, and, and kind of like, no, no, don't do that. It's, it's not a major criticism. It's just something I was thinking about. I, I kind of want uh, Doctor Strange's powers to be more inscrutable and not to offer some sort of speculative uh, physics explanation of how they all work. I don't know. That's just me. Maybe some people found that really interesting, but I, I, I just thought it, om- it almost worked against their their premise uh to say that um you know there are things that we can't understand and then they they go on to try to explain it <laughs> and how, how it all works um, I, I i see what you mean and I, I i get it i get the criticism but i i i feel like some of this is the sort of ongoing issue of the film because you know there is the moment where he uh is first confronted where she forces him into astral projection and he sees you know hands that spring other hands out of them and so forth and all that crazy stuff and he is for a second you know completely balled over and even to a certain extent humbled by it and there he is on the doorstep waiting for hours and hours to come back in uh and yet as he grows into this new role as a sorcerer and as somebody who's learning magic and finds that he is somewhat adept at it, slowly but surely that same arrogance that he had as a surgeon starts to creep back in, and he thinks now he knows everything from this bit and that bit. And it it uh, it, it causes some issues. 
talk about your your Christian symbolism, one of the most sort of direct moments of this is when he goes in and and takes the uh, the artifact, uh, the eye that he's not supposed to touch, and uh, uses it to try and find out what the spell is that he's not supposed to know in the book. And as he's doing so, he's eating an apple. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And he uses this this new power <laughs> to kind of make the apple grow and then go back and forth and back and forth with the power of time. Boy, that could not be a more direct allusion to the garden <laughs> and the sure. loss of innocence well, that they tried. And then you have, like, the way you progress in this mystic science is through surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's like, you, you know, you are, you're very intelligent and you're used to figuring things out. But if you want to progress in the mystic arts, you need to learn to surrender. And so she teleports him to like Mount Everest or whatever. Uh-huh. Right. And yeah. he's like, what do you mean? I need to surrender to get more control. That's, that doesn't make any sense. It's paradoxical. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I thought that was that was uh, overtly uh, theological <laughs> as well. I mean, it it was a rather cruciform explanation of of how to advance uh, spiritually by by surrendering by by giving up our sort of need to control and and be in charge of our own uh, destiny. You know, when he's finally able to do that. It's when he's in his moment of extreme need, and he's able to just let go, and uh, and and then things you know progress. You know, it's not even that he surrendered. She said, you know, that you have to surrender, but it's not even that he surrendered, but it had to be done to him. Mm. He was just the passive recipient of being cast into that into Mount Everest, right, to the top of Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. So. There was there was just no decision there. He was just in a place where he had to die, and through that, come alive. Mm-hmm. He is the best at at what he does. He's the best surgeon in the world. He's you know I mean it starts off and he's just a rock star in the in the uh, medical world, um, and he's got that swagger, and uh, and he's schooling everybody you know, and, and then he is. You know, now in the position of being the neophyte and the one that needs to learn. And that's a very difficult thing uh, for him to do, for him to learn how to be weak. This crippling nerve damage that he has in his hands because of the because of a car accident, you know, is what leads him on this path to, uh, you know, mystic discovery, you know, and in his attempt to heal that. You know, it kind of reminds me of the of, you know, Paul's thorn in, in the flesh. He's been given this weakness um, so that, you know, he can discover a greater power. Paul says that his his strength is perfected in, in weakness. And that's certainly true of, of Dr. Strange, who needs to discover that there's more to life than being the best. There's more power than you know he is able to master you know there's there's you know life is, is is bigger than you know the ancient one says at one point like it's not about you right <laughs> right um, right yeah what's interesting as you're talking matt because it, it made me think of the fact that the one thing we see all throughout the film is the the calm i mean the, the heart of the christian faith is death and resurrection right daily we die and daily we rise you know, Martin Luther said that's the ongoing effect of baptism in our lives is that through baptism we die and we are born again. And then we we constantly are being reborn each day. There's a sense in which we die and we come alive by God's spirit at work in us. What you see all throughout this movie is that constant motif of death and resurrection. Mm-hmm. So there he is, that prominent surgeon who's an arrogant a-hole, uh, <laughs> you know. He dies to that life through the car accident and is reborn into a new life as practitioner of the mystic arts. But then even in that, there's a constant death and resurrection happening. And sometimes it's put quite literally where he gets stabbed in the heart and ends up going into the operating room. He's dead and yet he comes alive again. But when he comes alive again, he comes alive again a bit more. So he's a bit stronger. Interesting. Um, so there's a, if you follow through the movie, this is what you're seeing. 
culminating in that battle with Dormammu. He gets killed and is resurrected. Killed, resurrected. Yeah, he, 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 well, he creates that time loop, right? Yeah. Well, but he comes back the stronger. He in, does, in and the, there, and that is the sort of ultimate surrender moment, right? Because Dormammu says to him, well, you, you can't win. And he says, no, but I can lose over and over again. And every mm-hmm. time I do, these people are saved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a... a, 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 and a type I, of Christ. A type of Christ. And I, don't, I, I think in general, I don't think Doctor Strange is, is, is meant to be a Christ figure necessarily any more than any other hero is. But I think in that moment, there's certainly a, a Christ-likeness to it. But what you're talking about, Father Kyle, is true. You know, I mean, the, the, the ancient one says, says to him when she says it's not about you, she also makes the, uh, the reference to a river. You can't beat a river, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so she says, silence your ego. There's a little bit of tension, I think, in that because at the same time, he's also learning to, you know, to make better decisions. And when they talk about rising above your demons, um, and so that, that kind of thing is there but there's also this sort of like learning to swim in the current of what's being given to you that that's there as well um that's the um that's the whole you know idea within christianity is that death is a death to the self you know that daily dying and being reborn by the power of the word in the sacrament is a death to the self and a rising to to use that language a rising to just live in the stream of god's love and you know his kingdom of forgiveness well father matt you would you were uh, were saying um earlier before we we started the show that the uh, director of the film is actually a christian is that is that right yeah um i i I discovered that um actually someone someone who had seen the film before i did sent me uh, a link a, a link to an interview with with the director of the film scott derrickson and, and she said, oh, you got to see this movie. It's, uh, it's right up your alley. It's a superhero movie, but it's also got all these great Christian themes. And she's like, I knew that the director had to be a Christian. She's like, I went, I went up and looked it up. And sure enough, he's one of the more outspoken Christians in Hollywood. He, he's the director of Deliver Us from Evil. The Exorcism of Emily Rose, oh, okay. uh, Sinister. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of his movies have he he makes a lot of horror films. Uh, you know, horror movies are a great genre to explore spiritual themes. I think, but uh, I, I thought it was interesting this article that I uh, there was this interview I read with him. He is uh, he's an evangelical Protestant, but he uh, he's fascinated with with Catholicism. In fact, he says he he's always one. Chesterton uh, book away from swimming the Tiber, <laughs> but, uh, but he says you know the the main thing is that you know his his family you know is is very involved in their church and and so you know, he's like I, I'm able to practice my faith in an evangelical uh, setting too, but he's drawn to Catholicism precisely for this reason because of the the mystery. I mean, he's a great fan of. The medieval mystics, he, he writes, um, and and the Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor, but he says, you know, that this is the dimension that's missing from, you know, his evangelical Protestantism, which is more rational. And he says, I've always been drawn to that, you know, those elements of the faith that are more mysterious, that, um, you know, are defy explanation, that. that point us towards the fact that you know there's really you know more dimensions to this life than we can possibly ever understand i mean i think a a catholic sacramental worldview definitely has that so it's no wonder that uh, that someone like scott derrickson is attracted to that i mean and you see those themes i mean as we've been saying very strongly in dr strange there's like you like we said there's no kind of explicit mention of christianity i mean if there's any kind of religious uh, you know undercurrent it's kind of more eastern uh, right. buddhism or whatever i mean the, right. the magic that they use is, is sort of um you know they have these mandalas and, and whatnot and that that's of course all part of the uh 
Stanley, Steve Ditko, uh, you know, comic book as well, the Eastern kind of mysticism. Um, right, but it's this vague kind of Eastern mysticism that doesn't exactly line up with, um, you know, so it sort of looks Buddhist and Hindu, but it doesn't actually yes. line up with anything Buddhist and Hindu. Well, and no. I, that's what I think is, so, that's another kind of criticism that I would have of the film. You know, it has this kind of like Orientalism, you know, I mean, the comic book does too, but it's it's kind of like here you have a, a, a movie that takes place largely in uh, the East and the ancient one is white. <laughs> um, Mordo Why is, wasn't uh, Matt is, Damon is the African ancient American one? Should have been Matt Damon. Huh? Should have been Matt Damon as the ancient well, one. I, I, you know, I mean, I he built the Great Wall of China. I saw the preview for that, uh, that samurai <laughs> movie or whatever about the Great Wall, where all the characters are white. I mean, that's kind of. That was sort of. I kept yeah. waiting the whole time for them to to show some kind of transition where wherein Wong becomes his faithful manservant. I was like, how are yeah. they going to make that politically correct? But uh, they yeah, just well, they I just mean, did it by know, avoiding it. Wong is yeah. in the comic book. I yeah. mean, I th- it, it was kind of like it's kind of bad that the only Asian character is sort of like the comic relief, you know, Wong, and, and then and then the kind of bearded character. Did that, you see that? You know, he initially thinks is the ancient one, right? Uh, did did you see? You did think? you see that guy's name though? The name of the guy who played Wong in the yeah, credits? Yeah, it was Benedict Wong. Benedict Wong, how amazing <laughs> is that? That was very. And funny. I was. Uh, we went and saw it with um, the Reverend uh, Hillary Raining and her um, husband, and uh, and so I, I just like leaned over to her at that point. I'm like, that's got to be a fake name, right? Because um, we had been talking about how Benedict Cumberbatch sounds like the sort of name that you would sign into a hotel with if you didn't want anybody to know you were there. You yeah. Know? I mean, the other slight criticism I'd have of the movie is that, you know, I, I'm after these kind of Netflix series where you have like a lot more time to sort of flesh out the characters, going back to seeing a movie, it all seemed, you know, I mean, because it, it was under two hours. It seemed like his rise to becoming a master of the mystic arts happened all pretty quickly. The shame was that they didn't get to really flesh up the villains too much. You seem kind of one-dimensional. And and Dormammu, um, you know, well, uh, he did he did we didn't get to know Dormammu. But too they're much. they're they're setting things up though, I I think. I mean, yeah. this was I, I was impressed with how well they did this origin story. Doctor Strange actually, yeah. I think, has one of the better origin stories for making a, a kind of film transition with, you know. Sure. But, you know, like, they're they're setting up, like, Mordo and, and so forth for what they're going to do with him down the line. You know, I, I think, um, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and, and I do think, you know, I mean, my wife was sort of like, she really liked the movie too, but she was sort of like, uh, that was a lot of information really quickly. So I can understand how if, you, if you've if you never read any Doctor Strange at all, it's a little bit like, okay, well, this guy, it's all this information all at once. But I think given the format and what it was and what it was doing, uh, it, it seemed to me that it did that at, at the highest level it possibly could. And as Father Kyle already pointed out, did all of that in under two hours which I'm so thankful for because, you know, I do get tired of these films that are almost three hours long. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, I could have cut 45 minutes out of that with a you know scalpel pretty easily. And there was nothing in this film that I thought, oh, they could have lost that and it would have been a better yeah, film. Yeah, no, there wasn't. And, and the good news is, I mean, you all saw at the very end, Doctor Strange will return. Doctor yeah, Strange so will return. more to be told. In Doctor Strange oh, 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love the, um, the the Pink Floyd. Yes. They stuck in there. What was it, Interstellar Overdrive? That's right. I, right, right. I was going to comment on that earlier when you were because, mentioning. Yes, exactly. Because, I mean, it, they, they picked up on the kind of psychedelic 60s heritage of Doctor yeah. Strange very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. I kept wondering what would happen if Joe Bluth showed up in the middle of the film and Joe Bluth? Joe, why, why Joe Bluth? Joe Bluth from uh, Arrested Development. Arrested Development. Yeah. Why? Well, you know, because he was the magician. So, like, if they just had him like, suddenly appear, 
you know, performing his illusions, you know, exactly. Let me, let me ask about this because we have talked about this being, um, you know, an evangelical who is drawn to certain Catholic things. I thought it was interesting how the film talked about relics. I thought this was interesting both in terms of how the film kind of handled this idea, but also just thinking that it would be an interesting discussion point for us because I, I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion that we won't all uh, be in agreement on the place of relics in the life of the church. Um, so, Your suspicion um, would be right. <laughs> Uh, basically, I mean, in the film, they talk about various things as kind of holding a kind of magic power to them that, you know, not all magic can just sort of fit in terms of somebody's head or knowledge or their skill or whatever, but some of it actually kind of attaches itself to objects, um, to, to things in the world. And uh, these get referred to as relics, and we see these kind of coming out. And actually, they they almost have a personality unto themselves at times, right? Uh, I mean, you know, the levitation cloak is probably going to win Best Supporting Actor for um, (laughs) its role in beating people up in in a couple of scenes there. You know, I, I think that this maps to a certain extent onto the um christian theology of relics um or at least the historic christian theology of relics which is that which has its basic starting point in the incarnation itself right which says that the world itself is not divorced entirely from god but that god is present within it and the incarnation is the ultimate expression of that that god is reclaiming his own creation becoming uh one with it and because of that oneness there is the possibility of God's continued presence in the world. And so, like, part of this is the sacramental theology of the Eucharist, right? I mean, the Eucharist is, if, if, any, if nothing else, it is an extension of our doctrine of the Incarnation, the, the, you know, that God became flesh. And what the, what the Church has historically said about relics is that these are things that are connected in some way, shape, or form to holiness, um, so that, you know, that the saints themselves participate in the holiness of Christ, the holiness of the incarnation, and that in some cases they participate to such a degree that uh, even, even the things that have been connected with them physically um, continue to kind of hold that, a certain amount of that uh, holiness to them, whether we're talking about an inanimate object, right? Because you can have a relic that's, you know, something that somebody had touched or blessed or used or, or what have you, or you can have a relic that actually is the body itself in, in some cases, you know, parts of parts of the body and, and so forth. Now, you know, there's a whole trade of these things in, in the medieval period that I think uh, all Christians or most Christians today are a little bit embarrassed by. I, I remember taking a class in seminary on on pilgrimage, and the professor it was I can't remember if it was the professor or it was actually the textbook, but one or the other him that said that if uh, if you assembled all of the pieces of the true cross that were floating around in that period of time, you could rebuild Noah's Ark. Um, <laughs> so there is a way in which this can become problematic when it becomes just. Um, a superstitious kind of, um, you know, we have to uh, have our magical totem uh, kind of a thing. But I'll just speak for myself. I don't see any problem with um, the idea that the holiness of the saints, which is ultimately the holiness of Christ itself, can also be found in the relics that they leave behind um, and that those can actually be in some way beneficial to us in our faith. Yeah, I mean, what do you guys think now that I've thrown that flame into the room? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I, on one level, I think it's it's just um, it's it's right there in, in in the New Testament. It's there in in the Book of Acts when we when when uh, handkerchiefs uh, of the apostles uh, being left behind and and their their the the power uh, of healing that that flow through the apostles continued to throw flow through their handkerchiefs that people were collecting these things or that like you know 
just a shadow that St. Peter cast on people, it was it was able to um, accomplish, you know, miraculous things. I mean, it, it, it's, it's weird to me. A lot of the, especially being raised evangelical, a lot of the kind of Catholic veneration of relics kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. But I, I think I've begun to appreciate that more that uh, my sacramental imagination has been able uh, has been it been growing and I, I think as you very eloquently described I mean this is all part of the sacramental understanding uh, of the universe that there are dimensions to life that we just uh, don't fully comprehend that are in- in- invisible to us. The benefit of some of these magical stories like like Doctor Strange is that they re-enchant our imagination to be able to imagine uh, these kind of uh, possibilities. I don't know. Father Kyle, I'm sure you're going to push back a yeah. little bit on this. Why, why, are we, why are we wrong, Father Kyle? Tell us why we're wrong. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, so I disagree with you. I, uh, I certainly hold a much more Lutheran position on this whole matter. And, you know, Luther's, in one of Luther's early writings against the relics, Luther said that there are really only three holy relics. That is baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the scriptures, because that's wherein the power of God is found by his word. And my own understanding of it and why I disagree is that to have power in a relic that is divorced from the word is to have the word without the spirit and my own theological, you know, basis and understanding of how things work from the scriptures is that the spirit and the word work together and to have the spirit divorced from the word is to enter into a form of enthusiasm. So, and And the last thing we want in the church is enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, not enthusiasm in that sense, in the sense of not excitability, but sure. God within-ism, uh, you know, a finding of God within oneself through uh, experience rather than through an objective outward word. So, you know, that for me, if you want to use the word relic, I'll use the word relic with regard to baptism, communion, and the scriptures. I believe there mm-hmm. God... God's power is, and there God's power works, and actually does create reality, new reality. Certainly, I think you would agree with me with regard to baptism and communion of the regenerative and forgiving power of God in those. But, you know, apart from that, I definitely don't think there's uh, any power in those things. Now, I... You know, is it interesting that, you know, they claim the Shroud of Turin is the the Shroud of Turin? Yeah, there's some interesting stuff to that. I find, you know, that kind of thing, if it's real, it's it's a fascinating artifact of our, his, our faith history, right? And I think those things can be valued on that front. But, um, but as objects of power, I certainly would be... In opposition, Father Kyle, you, um, Father Kyle, you would, um, but you would, uh, you wouldn't have a, you don't have a problem with some of these things as as symbols, though, right? Like a crucifix or a, a oh, no, an no, icon no, no. and so on and so forth. No, um, I the, love icons, yeah. and I, you know, I certainly, I am. You know, I, these terms, are they get bandied around so much. But right. I certainly think within my practice, I'm Anglo-Catholic. I have become much more so. I was raised that way, sort of slid down the, the ladder for a while, but now have become much more so and find that that stuff has great value. I mean, the mm-hmm. beauty of the liturgy and stained glass windows and icons and crucifixes, all that stuff is very powerful and um, useful because I would I would certainly agree with you that there is a different level of power in in something like the sacraments um, or even in the scripture than there is in you know a relic of a saint you know the the middle finger of Saint Thomas Aquinas or whatever it is <laughs> that we're talking about 
these are not I wouldn't say that these are equitable things. I don't know that any Catholic minded person would say that they were equitable things. You know, clearly the I mean, the Eucharist especially is the body and blood of our Lord. It is the um, uh, the uh, source and summit of our of our life in Christ. But then, what what is the power that these other things have? What is the power of it then? What is the power of a crucifix or of a icon or of something else? You know, I I guess the the power of it is that one, it does point to the reality that's contained in the word and. It's a remembrance, if we might want to use that word. I don't think it's a remembrance in the same way that it is in the sense of the Lord's Supper being a remembrance, right? That's anamnesis. That's the do this to make me present. That's the heart of that word. And I don't think that those things necessarily do that. I think they call to mind what's already been spoken through the word and sacrament as a reminder of those promises that God has given to us. And that's where I see them for that value. You know, when I look at an icon, I'm reminded of what the word has already said to me. And I'm driven back to that word mm-hmm. as a consequence of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of the value that it holds. Okay. It's a symbolic value. I just wanted to say, I mean, I think maybe the power of, you could say the power of these relics is that they inspire uh, faith in, in those who who, who, uh, who who behold them. And that, that it's their their faith and their, their confidence in God that is, is the actual power. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe... Maybe that's what's happening. I just looked up the the verse in in the in the book of Acts where it says God did extra. And this is Acts chapter nineteen, ver, verse uh, eleven, beginning with verse eleven. God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and the diseases and evil spirits left them. You know, I guess one could argue, you know, what about what's happening there? But these certainly seem like relics. You know, there's 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 something else that that happens here in, in Acts chapter nineteen too, where there's the uh, itinerant Jewish exorcist, and and they try to use the the same kind of power that that the apostles had you know, through the name of Jesus or, or whatever it is, as almost like a magical thing. And uh, and it doesn't work out for them. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, they get kind of roughed up and, 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 and uh, you know, they're like, well, Paul, we know, Jesus, we know. You know, and I, I think that's, that's the difference between faith and magic. Magic is, is an attempt to manipulate the spiritual world for our own ends. And, and, and faith is surrendering to the power of God's spirit for his ends, you know, and, and, and I think it's interesting that that's what ultimately kind of makes Dr. Strange a master in the mystic arts is that he stops seeking his own ends um, on like, uh, you know, some of the more wicked uh, practitioners of magic in, in, in the movie. Well, speaking of that. Um, the, the last thing I wanted, I mean, there's so much more that we could get into, but I do want to, before we get away from our main topic, uh, circle back around to this idea again of knowledge and the danger of, of knowledge. And one of the other things that comes out in this film is a kind of manipulation of dark energy that uh, is being used theoretically for a good purpose. So you have the Ancient One uh, basically using some of this dark energy from this dark realm, but she's using it to keep herself alive so that she can continue to protect the world from the dark realm. And there is this back and forth that she has with Doctor Strange about this where she says, well, you know, you understand that occasionally you have to break the rules in order to to set things right. And I have to say as much Christian imagery and so forth as there was in this film, this was the one thing that I found sort of troubling uh, as a concept. I wonder what you guys thought of that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with you. I think there was something troubling with it. I, it's funny because it reminded me a little bit of Star Wars in some of the recent directions that Star Wars has been going, both in its novel and film form. There's a sense in which one needs both the dark side and the light side. A little bit of, of the dark side doesn't hurt is becoming a new a new kind of theme within the Star Wars canon. and uh, <laughs> With the Taoist ideas in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then I hear echoes of that in this, and it almost seems like a satanic trap, like dabble in a little bit of that <laughs> dark stuff. And it's okay, it's beneficial, you know, and it goes back to that whole scene in the garden with the did God really say and God's holding out on you. And there's just, you know, a little bit here that might be beneficial for you. Mm -hmm. So it makes me very nervous. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if the whole business there is, is not more of, a, um, uh, uh, I'm more of kind of a Jungian, uh, thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, with Carl Jung saying that we need to acknowledge that, the shadow side of our personality really is us and that we can, uh, through understanding the shadow side of ourselves, you know, we can advance psychologically or, or, or spiritually. Maybe that's kind of what the ancient ones trying to get at. Like Mord Mordo is completely ignorant of his uh, shadow side. He's projecting his shadow out into the world so that you see at the end, you know, he's, you know, it's set up for the next film. He's out trying to kill all the sorcerers because he sees the evil outside because he was unable to, you know, see it in himself. You know, the ancient one understands the dark dimension. You know, she doesn't let it master her, but she understands it. I think maybe that's kind of a theme that they're introducing that will uh, maybe be a part of the, the next film. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I found it kind of, I, I, you know, raised my eyebrows a bit like, whoa, it seems incongruent with so much here? of the rest of the film, you know, it seems mm -hmm. so incongruent to have this um, whole thing be about light versus darkness and then kind of to circle around at the end and go, but you know, a little bit of darkness for the sake of fighting other darkness, maybe not so bad. Um, it'll be fine. <laughs> With the interesting thing in it, too, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking a little bit more about this scenario. And going back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, you know, there's all this talk of lose the ego and, you know, it's not about you. But the character of the ancient one still has that element of it's about her because why does she mm -hmm. dabble in the dark side so that she can have eternal life so that she can not die well there's ego well there's it certainly looks like that at, at, at first but she's like be careful you're you know you might not understand this completely um right uh, you know right. so yeah i, I, I think I mean, if anything that's the way out of it is and this is this was sort of my my way of kind of reconciling it was to say well i'm not entirely sure that she is supposed to be a fully trustworthy character here that we're supposed to emulate yeah um, i would hope not and so maybe as he develops he'll come to realize that that wasn't as good a piece of advice yeah. <laughs> as she made it out to be so yeah. all right well wonderful discussion um there is so much more that we could say on this topic and about this film. I hope that some of you all will, will come and join us in the conversation. Um, you can uh, talk to us about what you thought of the film, what you thought of the various parallels. Um, you can send your favorite relic to Father Kyle, um, <laughs> you know, whatever you'd like. Um, and you can do it all through social media, which I think is quite magical. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash godandcomics. We are also on Twitter. You can tweet at us at godandcomics. Tell us what you think. But for now, we're going to astral project ourselves into the last segment of our show, uh, this and every week, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. 
Oh. All right, Father Matt, take it away. Okay. Um, my my first uh, question is for you, Father Jonathan. The eye of Agabano or the eye of the tiger? I believe the correct answer to that question is the eye of Bono, because <laughs> there is nobody more magical in the world of pop music than Bono. Um, and so I'm going to go with that. I don't know. He's, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he's held the hand of the devil. That's true. And his so. eyes aren't very strong either. That's why he wears the sunglasses all the time. Well, he's stuck in a moment he can't get out of. You know. <laughs> um, so speaking of uh, rock and roll music, this one's for uh, Father Kyle. Roger Waters or Sid Barrett? Oh, that's a really tough call. I love Pink Floyd. Both of two Pink Floyd, uh, you know, uh, yeah. is behind Pink Floyd. Yeah, the early so days and the later days. Right, so Sid Barrett is the is the head of the band in the very early days, and Roger Water becomes the leader as time progresses after the first album. That's a tough one. I probably would have to say, simply for the volume of work, Roger Waters, because of the stuff. You know, Sid Barrett was the writer and and the the lead person on Piper at the Gates of Dawn, but obviously Roger Waters has held sway from a saucer full of secrets all the way on through the final cut. And that's a pretty extensive body of work. And um, at the same time, that's where most of the famous Pink Floyd stuff came about. So for that reason, I'll say Roger Waters. But I will add the caveat that I think that Sid Barrett is a, is a genius songwriter. Theologian and missiologist Leslie Newbigin, or... Legendary actor and star of the Naked Gun trilogy, Leslie Nielsen. So uh, Newbegin is um, is a very uh, interesting figure. Has a lot to say on the topic of ecumenism. Did such great missionary work in in India and so forth. But I, I have to ultimately say. On just about any topic, if I'm presented with one of the stars of Airplane. Um, I, I have to kind of go with that. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to say Leslie Nielsen. That yeah, was the right answer. It's a tough one. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I have to, I have to meditate on that one <laughs> on a mountaintop somewhere in Tibet yes. for a while. Father Kyle, as, as, as the father of a, of a young uh, daughter, you will, uh, appreciate this question. The Doom Patrol or the Paul Patrol? <laughs> I will say the Doom Patrol. Father Jonathan, Dr. Fate or the Spectre? Both characters have quite a bit of power and knowledge. You know, I think I'm going to go I'm going to go with Dr. Fate. I'm sort of tempted to say the Spectre, but I feel like Dr. Fate is more involved on the ground level. You know, the Spectre tends to want to stay out of things if, uh, if possible. And uh, Dr. Fate has the coolest mask. Yes. Yeah. Father Kyle, whose touch of gray is more sophisticated, Dr. Strange or Jason Blood? I would probably have to say Jason Blood. His touch of gray comes from being older, doesn't it? Yeah, he's well, he, he's lived hundreds for and hundreds of years. He goes yeah. back to like Arthurian times, right? So I will say that his is more sophisticated, simply because he's wizened by many, many years. Yeah, I always he's wait, wait, he's what? Gray, like, wizened. He's wizened. Wizened. Yes. Look it up. Yeah. Okay. So, like, somebody peed on him? <laughs> no. He's made wise. Oh. All right. Oh, Lord. I may have made the word up, but I think it's a word. Oh, uh, okay. Um, Father Jonathan, who would you... Ra- how would you rather go on a, a cross-country road trip with Stanley 
in a 57 Chevy. Done. Or Stanley <laughs> Hauerwas in a Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, come on. Stan Lee in a 57 Chevy. That's not even a competition. <laughs> First of all, I, I feel like if I was with Stanley Hauerwas, um, I, you know, the, I may learn a lot. Because he's a very smart guy and has a lot of interesting things to say. But I also feel like he would kind of yell at me the whole time. Like, I just get that sort of a vibe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, is he an angry man? I mean, I well, don't even know who he is, but... He, he's kind of known for his uh, two-fisted pacifism. Right. <laughs> um, whereas Stan Lee would just be delightful. Yeah, he'd just yeah. tell me stories about the golden days of Marvel, and you know, plus we'd be in a '57 Chevy. Who can beat a '57 Chevy? Well, you know, that's a good point. We'll pick that's up Leslie point. Nielsen and resurrect him from the dead, and we'll go on our way. <laughs> Wasn't that a great cameo by Stan Lee in Doctor Strange? Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, what was the book he was holding? I couldn't tell. I, I tried to look quickly and i couldn't see it okay. uh, i hope it was something about the mystic arts i think it was but <laughs> father kyle now interpret this the way uh you want to but simon magus or the witch of endor you know simon magus from the book of acts yes the yes. witch of endor is the medium that Saul consults about uh, conjuring the spirit of, of the prophet Samuel. Yes. Right, right. and she, both... she lives with Ewoks, I believe. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> she lives with Ewoks. She does. Yes. Yeah, that's right. She's from that planet. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a tough one because um, I'm trying to put some sort of a spin on it in terms of what to say. Well, I mean, you could you could think like who whose sin was more egregious? Uh, yeah, let's go with that one. Whose sin was more <laughs> egregious? I probably would say Simon Magus because you find that the church fathers credit him with a lot of the early heresies of the church. Uh, he becomes not only the source of trouble in the Book of Acts, but also that he uh, he went on to create further troubles for the early church. So. Yes. Let's say in light of that that he um, he's the 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 one of the two. Yeah, he's an arch heretic. I think he's like Dormammu to like you know Athanasius is Doctor Strange. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, okay, I, I have one more just for Father Jonathan Benedict Cumberbatch or Augustine Pumpkin Patch. <laughs> what is Augustine Pumpkin Patch? Did you just make that up? You just you're trying to just you have to not use your intellect. Just surrender. <laughs> uh, I'll leave you yeah. on the top of Everest to contemplate. How about that one? <laughs> Bene- Benedict Pumpkin Patch? Let's go with that. We'll just put the two of them together. Well, uh, <laughs> on that uh, on that rather mysterious note, we will bring our our uh, our show to a close. If you would like to listen to the show again uh, or see links to some of the rad stuff that we talked about today, you should visit our show page at godandcomics.com. You can also subscribe to the program on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and a review, we would be ever so grateful. It helps other people to find us. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who once astral-projected himself right into the middle of a Debbie Gibson concert, only to realize that all he knew were Tiffany songs. Until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya. <laughs>